Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. My name is Jeremy Dixon, your host as always, and with me through the miracles of modern medicine, uh, co-host of the year up to this point, Brandon Stevens. Brandon, say hello to the people. Hey, you know, what's up, Jay? It's, um, this is how you earn those titles. You know, you play through adversity and you rise to the occasion. Yep, yep. Brandon uh, came through with the crutches. He's uh, he's about three days removed from uh, a, what a meniscus uh, repair. Yeah. yeah, had a little meniscus surgery, but you know, can nothing stop me, Jay? When it comes to the podcast, I just, you know, I don't want to make an excuse and not be here when you know you, you're here every day. I am. I'm ready to and go. You, and you go through times. some things. Hey, man, we got to do what we got to do. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, people, you can listen. You're obviously you found this podcast. If you could share it, um, you know, like, rate, review, all of those good things, we would appreciate it. If you could go back, if you haven't listened to any episodes, click on those. Uh, get us some credit with the, with the algorithms uh, on Apple and all that, Spotify. You can listen on both of those platforms. You can listen to iHeartRadio. We have a great description of the podcast on iHeartRadio, by the way. Um, and it's you know better, what? It's better now? No, it's not. It's the same. Oh, being gosh, sarcastic. Man. I don't even know how to change that, actually. I'll so, probably have to do that through Podbean. Yeah, probably. But, uh, you know, I was um, going to say I did get my second dose of the vaccine. Yeah. Um, yeah, on, you were scared. I was you a little paranoid. I was a little bit worried going in, but uh, hey, I'm good, man. I had no side of uh, really no side effects other than like my arm was real red for like two days, like kind of looked like somebody punched me in the arm. Um, but yeah, it was that was it. That's, it that's didn't awesome, really bother. man. So now in in two weeks, you'll be considered uh, fully vaccinated. Yeah, you can get out there and. Well, and you're getting your vaccine on what Monday? I'm going in on Monday. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to get the uh, J&J dose. Nice. Um, and that was the one I was hoping to get. But, you know, they've uh, they've opened up the vaccines for the general population here. And so... Finally. Um, yeah, I searched around a little bit. I mean, I, I'm sure I could have got the other ones pretty easily, but I just didn't really want to have to go back for a booster. So, But I think the one that you got is probably a little more effective overall. So that's good for you. Yeah. The, the funny thing... Uh, to me was that leading up to getting my second dose, like everybody I know that we, and we don't need to name names, but there's some people that, uh, you know, don't really believe in the vaccine. Don't believe in the the virus. I don't know what their, their holdups are, but, um, you know, they're, they're friends of the podcast, but they decide, I love how people decide to tell you like right before you're going to get a shot, like about people who died getting the shot Mm -hmm. or, this this or that or the other thing you know uh, just uh yeah i mean i don't want to get too much into that man i i think they're the internet is a wild ass place and it's like a it's like a free range preschool where yeah. like you just let little kids just run around in the mud and let them do whatever they want um and then later you just like clean them up right and uh, then what <laughs> comes out from that is like some some wild ass whatever theories you want to put in but um, right yeah yeah when it comes down to it i I don't know i mean i I wouldn't doubt it if there had been people that died man i mean that's it's it's new man it's you know kind of a there i mean everything early early on in the in the we do know i mean we do know that like almost six hundred thousand people have died from covid so i mean you gotta figure maybe some of those same people might have died from COVID. Who knows, man? Yeah, yeah. So we'll let people do what they want. I just hope that um, we can move past this. That's all I really want. Well, I just played it up after that, and I was, like, texting them, like, oh, man, if I die, remember me like <laughs> I was sending yeah. pictures, like, remember me like this. That was funny. Yeah, we were getting into well, it. Good, but good news is, Jeremy, you're still here. Oh, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. Hell no. Um, yeah, man, this is, uh, you know, I feel like it's starting to turn to spring, man. Things are just looking up, I feel like. The- well, they got us They got us paranoid. They're still going with the paranoia, man, out here. And, 
the the main like I get it, man. The mainstream media wants you to think that we're all gonna die, and I know that's not the case either. There has to be a little bit of a happy medium. I right. I I am gonna get the vaccine, but listen, I do believe that there is when I'm watching the the news and they got the CDC director on and they're like, oh. They're like the trends are going to go. They're looking like we're going to spike up again. This is exactly what it looked like the other two times, Um, you know, probably because they want people to get the vaccine and probably because there are incentives um, for pharmaceutical companies to, um, you know, make money. I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. I believe you, too. Yeah, I believe you, too, on that. Yeah. I mean, it's just. Um, but that doesn't mean that that they don't work. I just think that there's money involved, and then there's also health risks involved. Well, uh, speaking of vaccines, today um, our guest, Dr. Chris McCullough, uh, he this gentleman has a spinal cord injury, Brandon, and he is a surgeon. He gets up. He has one of the standing wheel like the wheelchairs that can stand you up, and he does surgery on it's and he's a pediatric surgeon at that Dang. which is amazing and he actually got so speaking of vaccines he i asked him about you know having a spinal cord injury and going into the hospital every day must have been pretty crazy and he um he actually was in the uh trials of one i, I forget i don't know if he mentioned which one it was i can't remember now but um you'll hear it in the in the podcast here in the interview section which was it's pretty cool man and so i uh i was reading an article of a person that was in the original pfizer trials yeah yeah. and he got his um first vaccine like almost a year ago now and so he's actually on his third they're trialing him now he's joined up for the third uh booster wow yeah and he's had no problems so that's cool man that's cool yeah uh, dr mccullough said he hadn't been contacted yet about any booster shots like he said they're still monitoring his whatever uh, yeah yeah the guy antibodies. said he's been freaking monitored like left and right so i mean i guess right. that's one uh perk of getting, <laughs> being a guinea pig for a vaccine man is yeah. you're getting like crazy testing and medical care so Right, right. I don't know if I'm down to do all that, but good for him, man, that he did that. And uh, I know that, you know, uh, being a doctor, I'm sure that, uh, you know, he has full faith in the the medical system um, and the scientists and the doctors behind the research. So, right. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, hey, let's get to this interview with Dr. Chris McCullough. I mean, this like this guy's like a unicorn to me, Brandon. Like, just. This, uh, you guys are going to enjoy this. This is all about, you know, following through with your dreams, you know? Like, this guy got injured, Brandon, when he had just been accepted to medical school. But he didn't want to let that stop him? No. Did it. Did the damn thing. So, anyway, without further ado, here is Dr. Chris McCullough. We'll talk to you guys on the other side. This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, we are excited to have the chance to visit with Dr. Chris McCullough. Uh, He's a pediatric minimally invasive surgery fellow, a disability advocate, a teacher, and uh, he happens to have a spinal cord injury. Uh, Dr. McCullough, how are you doing? Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeremy, man. It's good. It's good to be here, man. I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. Thanks. How about you? I'm, I'm good, man. Hanging in there. Can't no complaints. So, yeah. So for anybody, um, you know, that doesn't know, I guess, about about your story, can you tell us how you actually got injured? Sure. Um, so I was um, I had been actually planning to go to medical school um, and I had gone and interviewed and um, actually gotten accepted at a couple different schools. It was about six months before I was about to start medical school, and I was in my apartment. Um, It's just a regular Sunday night, Um, nothing, you know, nothing really too crazy or exciting. Um, And I I lived in an apartment which had um, very nice hardwood floors, and uh, I... I'm also six foot three, so um, I was uh, standing up to um, walk across toward the kitchen, and I slipped, 
and my entire body um, sort of went flying up in the air. My neck came crashing down on the edge of a very thick glass coffee table, um, and it snapped my uh, my neck backwards, and it actually popped out the C7 vertebra. It was actually dislocated out of my spine, um, and it actually had, uh, the cord had flipped around and the vertebra was between, well, the C7 vertebra was lodged between C5 and C6. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I had been an EMT before and was always interested in medicine. So I knew that I had to stabilize my neck as much as I could. Um, and I had to, I was home by myself and my phone was charging up on the desk. So I had to find something to, to throw and use like a, you know, a lasso and pull down my phone. Um, so I pulled it down off the phone and uh, off the desk. And then um, I uh, managed to get myself uh, some help and had someone come help. And, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit. I was in the EOR for about seven or eight hours. They had to fuse my posterior and anterior cervical spine because um, it wasn't stable enough, which is the posterior. Um, so they had to flip me over. It's about an eight hour procedure. I went to rehab for about four months. Um and I thought to myself, uh, when I first went into rehab, well, you know, I, uh, I, I, may, I, I don't know if I'm still going to be able to go to medical school. I don't know if I could be a doctor. Um, and uh, I was very lucky enough. And this is kind of a recurring story, a recurring theme for me was I was very lucky enough to run into somebody who was a, a great mentor and said, why not? You know, um, and so he uh, was the first person to really encourage me to pursue medicine. And then I. Uh, thought, well, I can be a doctor, but I can't be a surgeon, which is what I always wanted to do. And I met somebody who, uh, after some research, who had a disability, who was also a surgeon. And then I found a couple more people who'd been surgeons. And I started to think that maybe it was feasible. So uh, off I went to medical school. And then um, I worked again with a few good mentors who helped facilitate getting the right equipment um, and getting me into the operating room and getting a chance to actually get to the table. And that's kind of when I realized it might actually be doable. Um, obviously, it's different for me than it is for somebody who doesn't have a disability. But, um, but it's still, uh, it's it's been a that's the very short and condensed version. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what so what year were you injured? I was injured. I was. Uh, it was early two thousand eight. Um, so it was about thirteen years ago. Yeah. Wow. I had just turned, I just turned 28 years old. I was getting ready to start, like I said, I was getting ready to start medical school. So. Yeah. So how long after the injury and going through, like you said, four months of rehab, how long before you were able to actually start into medical school? Did you, were you able to start on time, how you were going to prior to the injury or did it have to be delayed because of that? I decided to defer for a year. I, um, you know, Four month, four or five months out from an injury is just you have, you're still trying to get your bearings straight at that point, you know. And the thought of going off to a new city and a new, you know, a new school with people I didn't really know anybody there, and uh, um, and I I didn't think I, I needed more time, so I, I I deferred for a year just to focus on outpatient rehab, and I spent a couple hours a day doing rehab, everything I could to try to strengthen myself and get ready. Um, and I learned going through that process that another year was great, but it really takes about four or five years of going through this before you start to really, you know, mentally adapt to everything, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did, uh, I guess, what is the question I want to ask? How, how was it moving everything to a new city uh, to start medical school, which is obviously medical school. You hear that's like one of the, I mean, law school and medical school. And, you know, I mean, I <laughs> probably a few others out there that are, are kind of known as the most rigorous of, of all uh, degrees to get. Like, I mean, obviously, I guess you don't know what it's like going through medical school without a spinal cord injury, but, um, you know, compared to your other studies earlier in life, like what, what was it like moving to a new city and starting such a rigorous uh, schooling? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I honestly don't even know that I've even thought about it that way before. Um, I, uh, I kind of just, um, I don't, I don't want this to sound wrong. I kind of just did it without thinking about it. <laughs> um, I, it was, it was a lot and I don't think I really appreciated it until after I started going through it. Um, 
I, um, you know, I, I packed up all my stuff and uh, I'd moved around a lot. I grew up in New York City and we'd moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I was accustomed to moving, but it's different to move 400 miles away um, to a whole different part of the country that you've never lived in. Um, where, where, and where did you actually go to medical school at? Also, sorry. I um, math, but... uh, yeah, yeah. No, um, so I went to medical school at Case Western, um, which is in Cleveland. Okay. Um, I loved it there. I can't say enough positive things about my experience at, at Case and Case Med. Um, they were, when I first called them and told them that um, I had been injured and that I needed to defer for a year, they were obviously very understanding. And over the course of that next year, they actually put together um, a group, including a um, physiatrist, uh, two physiatrists actually, um, the disability um, advocacy and uh, disability services departments within the university, the medical school faculty. And I went out there for a meeting um, about four or five months before I was supposed to start school just to pretty much have a site visit, make sure that everything was accessible. You know, they'd never had a student who had been a wheelchair user before. Um, so if this was a whole new thing for them, it was a whole new thing for me. But, um, you know, they came to the table and, and um, really were there um, to try to help make the transition. Um, and that, that's probably one of the things that made the move to medical school not as bad as it could have been. Um, the other thing that I did is I moved out there about a month before school was supposed to start just to get my bearings. Um, you know, it's, it was a whole new city and learning how to navigate in a chair in a new city. Um, it was a, a pretty good amount to figure out. So, um, so I, you know, and it, it's my experience at least was that, you know, the, the social aspect of having a, of, of going from being able-bodied to having a disability was, a it was a big change, you know, and then sort of learning to be confident again in social settings. So that was, uh, it was a tough time. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I appreciated it at the time. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people probably go through something like that. Um, just adjusting to, to, you know, a new normal in life. Um, so it was a lot. And, um, I said, I think that's why it took me five years to really feel like I was back to, um, any kind of baseline of what I would call my normal mental state. So, and like you said, medical school is, um, it's a lot, you know, a lot of people say it's trying to sip water from a fire hose, the amount of information you have to learn in four years. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So how did, um, I, I, I'm wondering how people kind of around you reacted when you were still like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to you know chase this dream of being a surgeon and, and, you know, which is amazing that you, you were able to, to, to push through and, and make that happen. But I mean, did you notice people around you or like in the school, like the, the um, you know, while you were getting your doctorate, thinking, looking at you strangely or, or thinking, you know, like, how, how yeah. are you going to make this work? Because, yeah. and that, that's my other, I guess, part of it, too, is, uh, you know, I know you use a, one of the wheelchairs that you can stand up in to, to do the surgery. So, um, and those were probably pretty early on at that point, weren't they? I think so. Uh, you know, the brand that I use is a, is a Levo standing chair and I've tried Permobile, Levo and Quantum. I've tried, um, you know, sort of standing or multi movement chairs from all, th all three of the vendors before. Um, I think it, it was probably on the early side of when they were manufacturing them on a, on a larger scale. Um, there were definitely people who were, uh, say, doubtful, to say the least. <laughs> um, you know, I had people who would say, well, you know, what about if there's a code in another building and you have to get to a different floor in another building in a short period of time, how are you going to do that? Um, and there were people who sort of downplayed the whole, um, not downplayed it, but they, I think they, you know, they sort of said, well, you wouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it just requires a little bit of creative thinking to say, well, I can still do most of those things. It's just a matter of if I do them differently than somebody else. Um, and while it is true that I'm, I'm not gonna be on top of someone's chest performing CPR, um, when you're in a hospital setting, there's usually about 30 or 40 people in those rooms. <laughs> so I don't need to be the one who's actually doing you know, chest compressions on somebody. Um, so my view was always, if I'm in a situation where I can't physically do something, then I should at least be sure that I'm able to be 
overseeing the whole situation and potentially directing somebody else uh, in how to do something. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, on the the 2020 segment that I watched about your about you doing your work, it was it seemed pretty. Uh, you know, you're you're six three, like you mentioned. So you're standing up, you know, washing your hands and, and doing these different uh, these different tasks. And um, you know, does like how, how how long does it take you to stand up in the chair? I mean, are you like going through the hospital stood up, or are you just doing that when you have to go in for surgery? Are you sitting down most of the time? Like, how does that work for you? I, I do most of the time I sit down and I just stand up during surgery. Um, what I've gotten to the point now, um, the standing chair takes about, I don't know, about 30 or 40 seconds to maybe get to a full standing position, maybe 30 seconds. Um, and, but I only use it in the, um, in the operating room. Outside the operating room, um, I use a, um, a power chair that has a seat elevation and slide and tilt um, so that I can, um, uh, for me, that's a better thing to be at the bedside. Um, one of the things that we have to do as surgeons, we do obviously surgery in the operating room, um, but we do a lot of procedures at the bedside. So we might put in central lines and, you know, a, a, an IV in somebody, or we put a chest tube in somebody, or um, we have to close uh, wounds or, you know, make, um, you know, do small procedures and things. Um, so for me, it's actually better to be in a, um, a seated position during those things and get right up to the patient's bedside. So I've, through trial and error over the years, I've found that for me, having multiple chairs turned out to be the best um, solution. Um, I was very, I was again, very fortunate. Uh, the standing chair um, was actually, um, I had a physiatrist who managed to get it approved by the Ohio Bureau of Vocational Rehab. Um, so the state actually paid for the first standing chair. Because oh, wow. um, these things are, they're, they're not cheap pieces of equipment. You know, a regular power chair obviously is, is not cheap. And then to try to get something custom like this on top of it, um, I, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. Um, so if it wasn't for the Ohio Bureau of Vocational Rehab, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Um, so. <laughs> no, that's, um, that's amazing. Yeah. And it was also thanks to a physiatrist who knew how to navigate the system and get the right pieces of support and letters of support in place. So that's very cool. So it, it, into your, um, I guess, into the schooling, how, how long in before you actually, because obviously, you know, probably year one, year two, they're not going to put you in the, the operating room anyway, like you're going to be learning so much stuff. When when at, at what point do you start actually going into the operating room and observing and then participating? Um, so that, I mean, that was another, uh, normally in medical school, we start that in third year. Um, that's another one of those times when I was fortunate enough to have really good mentors at Case. Um, I was interested in neurosurgery um, when I got to medical school, not just because of my injury, but because um, my background was in technology before medical school. And I thought, oh, the you know, a nervous system is the brain, is the body's computer network and all that. And I thought it was a really cool, you know, part of the body. So I was, that was just where my interest was even before the injury. And so I started talking to some of the neurosurgeons at, um, at Case um, when I was a first year medical student. And rather than saying, oh, we don't think you can do neurosurgery or we, can, we don't think you can do X, Y, Z. Um, there's a guy, Dr. Al Cohen, he's a pediatric neurosurgeon. He's, I think he's now at Hopkins. Um, they said, he said, uh, why don't you come down to the OR and we'll get you, we'll get you scrubbed in and doing some cases. And that was as a first year medical student. Um, so his view was, uh, why not? You know? So I was lucky enough that he got me in early and I got a chance to really try things out, um, from the very beginning. And that was huge. Um, because then by the time I got the third year, which is when we actually do our rotations. And then when we actually are in the operating room or on the wards full time, um, I had already gotten the standing chair. I had already been in the OR. I'd learned how to scrub. I'd gotten all the basics out of the way. So I was able to actually be successful when I did that rotation. So that was huge. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, I have a question about, so I'm wondering, so as a pediatric surgeon, um, has there, like, 
you know, you roll into the room of these parents that are probably freaked out by that their child's going to have to go in for surgery. Um, yeah. have you ever, I'm sure you probably have some crazy story. I don't know, maybe not crazy, but have you ever, have, has there been some, um, you know, interesting interactions with parents when they're like, uh, you're the one that's going to be performing surgery on my child? <laughs> Um, I, <laughs> there usually is a strange look in the very beginning. <laughs> they kind of look at me like, who's this guy? Uh, what are you doing in the room? Why, you know? And I explain to them, usually once I talk to them for a minute or two and they kind of realize that I, uh, that I know what I'm talking about, um, they kind of relax a little bit. Um, I've never had anybody come outright, at least to my face, and say, uh, you're going to be my child's surgeon. I don't want you operating on my kid. Um, I don't know if they're saying things behind closed doors that nobody's told me at this point. Um, but um, there are, more often than not, it's the, the funny stories come because the kids will ask, and the kids are, they, they have no, you know, they don't hide anything they don't hold anything back and I think it's it's great I mean they're you know they're curious they're innocent I don't want to you know scare them or, or give them any kind of bad impression so they ask questions very directly and usually the parents are kind of shocked that their kids are being so blunt they're like kids are like why are you in a wheelchair and then the parents are like stop 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 and I'm like no no it's okay you know <laughs> um, and then I answer the kids and I tell them and then that's it you know and they move on to the next thing because that's what kids do um, the things that have actually, I've had, um, on the flip side, I've actually had moments which have been sort of very meaningful is that I've had, after I spend time with parents and explain what we're going to do in the operating room, we're getting permission, we're getting consent to do a procedure, and I'll explain the whole thing and spend 10 or 15 minutes talking to them. I've actually had them turn around and say, you're going to be in the operating room, right? Like, you know, like they want me to be there. And that to me is like, that's incredible. That's an incredible feeling for anybody, I think, who's a surgeon, um, especially when they're still in training. Um, but in particular, even more so for me, because I go in with that attitude of like, oh, boy, are they going to be worried that the, this guy in a, in a chair is going to be operating on their kid? So. Right. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, and I, during that 2020 segment, also, I, what, I don't know if it was um, like another surgeon at the hospital that they were, um, and I don't know if you're even still at the same hospital as you were during that segment, but um, one of the surgeons said, you know, when, when you come in, they, because you're at the kind of at the child's height more, you know, it, it's kind of uh, disarming or, you know, like puts the kids at ease even a little bit having you in a wheelchair. So that, that, that seems very cool as well. Yeah. That, that was, um, the person who said that was Dr. Lazar. He was my program director in residency and he's another same theme. I mean, he's a guy who, when I applied for residency, he said, not only do we think we can make this work, but we think this is the right place to make this work. And so he bent over backwards. I mean, he, he, he fought a lot of battles on my behalf, including a number that I didn't even know about um, in order to get me to where I am now. And I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to him. Um, they're actually separate from him. There was a, one of our instructors in medical school like had published a study and he liked to tout the fact that patients feel more at ease when you're at eye level with them rather than stand towering over them while they're lying in a bed feeling sick in a hospital. Um, you know, and I know what it's like to be on the patient side. We know, you know, you know what it's like to be there. And when you've got five people who rush into a room and are all kind of barking at you, towering over you, it's, it's, you don't feel like you're part of the conversation. And so I had an attending who used to bring a little portable chair with him um, on rounds and he would just sit down next to the patients and talk to them and just sit with them. And some of the better attendings I had in residency would do that too. They would sit in the chair, they would sit on the edge of the bed if the patients you know, said it was okay. Um, so they could talk eye to eye with them. It makes a huge difference. So it makes a lot of sense. That really does. I, that, that really struck me in that, uh, in that 2020 piece of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, it's... You know, with this, uh, I'm wondering, so with this global pandemic that we've been dealing with for the last year plus, you know, how, how is that impact? So as, as someone with a spinal cord injury myself, I've been like trying to stay away from as many people as I, as I can, you know, not, yep. um, you know, just trying to keep myself safe because my lungs are compromised and I'm sure yours are to some degree as well. What, you know, what have you had to do? Like, how has it impacted your work and, and just your safety, I guess, through the last year, it's been 
been hectic for all of us, but I mean, imagine you going into a hospital every day. It's got to be a little nerve wracking. It was uh, in the very beginning, it was <clears throat> terrifying. I, I was scared to go to work every day. Um, my colleagues were too, and they, you know, they were young and able-bodied and healthy. And, and um, but I was very nervous um, because like you said, you know, any kind of neurologic um, dysfunction, you're, you're going to have problems with breathing. You're not going to be able to clear things as well from your lungs. And if you start getting a buildup of any kind of infection, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot harder to get rid of it. Um, so I was very, very scared at first. Um, you know, we, we normally, you know, I would, you know, change scrubs twice. I would do, you know, I would, I was constantly washing and scrubbing even more so than we usually do. Um, you know, just anything to make sure. And I, you know, um, in the very beginning, it was all the healthcare providers were keeping their distance as much as possible from patients who were COVID positive. And, you know, I was doing residency in Northern New Jersey. So we got slammed early last year at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, I had colleagues who were, uh, who sent their spouses off for a month or two to go live at their parents' house because they were scared they'd bring something home to them. Um, and I had people who wouldn't, didn't see their kids for a couple months. Um, but I was, like you said, I was very, very nervous. And I, um, so I, I didn't, um, and I, you know, I owed something to my, my coworkers, my co-residents, because they, everyone knew that if I, you know, going in with a chair, you're, it's hard to sterilize an entire chair. We didn't know how long the virus lasts on surfaces. So I was, they actually, a lot of them covered a lot of the bedside procedures that we normally do in patients that were COVID positive so that I didn't have to go into the rooms and do it. Um, I was still scared just being in the hospital. You know, we didn't know who had it and who was exposed and all of that. Um, so I was, I um, found out when Pfizer was doing their trial um, and I got into the trial very early. So I actually got vaccinated back in October because um, I wanted that as soon as possible. Um, you know, we knew all the healthcare workers were going to be at the front of the line for that, but I was, you know, I was jumping at the chance to get it. Um, so I, I did as soon as I could. It's been a big relief um, just knowing that, because I've had plenty of patients I was exposed to who we didn't think were positive or they were negative on their first test. And then we operated on them and then they turned out to be positive a day or two later. Um, the rap, the rapid tests were not as sensitive, um, as the, um, the PCR tests or the better, you know, the more sensitive tests. So there were numerous times that we were, they were negative. We thought, okay, we're, we're not, we, um, we don't have to do the full get up the full gear. And then a day later we found out they were positive. So. Wow. That's, that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, so do you think, um, with that, I'm going to geek out on, on vaccines for a minute, but do you think um, having gotten the Pfizer vaccine in October, are you going to have to get like a booster shot or something like that sometime soon? Or have that's a really, that? that's a really great question. Um, so part of the trial, they're doing multi-year follow-up to check antibody levels and actually determine whether or not we're going to need those. <laughs> um, I actually have my six month follow-up appointment in later this week <laughs> to get the next antibody tighter. Um, but they, they haven't told us yet about any of that, but they're, they're checking and their test had, I think, um, 40,000 people in it or 45,000 people in the, in the trial. So um, that'll give us an idea of what the antibody levels are. It's an interesting question because the, the, you know, the early data showed that people who were exposed and developed a natural immunity, that immunity wore off over time. Right. So six months later, they may not be immune. And there have been a few cases of people who caught it twice. Um, small numbers, but so I'm hopeful that it, that this is a lot, a long lasting kind of thing, but time will tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and Dr. McCullough with you, you mentioned earlier that you were, you know, you're really, you had a kind of a technology background ahead of uh, getting into, getting into um, the medical field. Um, what, what have you thought about Neuralink? Have you looked into that much? Have you probably, I know you're probably super busy, so I don't even know if you've had a chance to look at any of that sort of stuff, but um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, I, I can't say I know a ton about it. You know, I've looked, um, I've looked a little bit, 
just because I think that um, anything that Elon Musk is involved in is going to be very interesting. <laughs> um, and I think it has a lot of potential. Um, but I, I can't really say I know enough about the technology yet to know where it's going. Um, I think he's done some pretty incredible stuff before. Um, and I think if anybody can maybe take it to the next level, it's, it's potentially him because he's just got that you know, mad scientist, mad genius kind of mindset. <laughs> um, um, so I'm very curious what he does with it. Um, uh, he's been very successful with Tesla and, and he's a guy who can really see things that turn out to be a much bigger deal that, than the rest of us see, you know, and um, I'd geek out more on Tesla because they're more of a battery company than a car company. And I think that's a testament to what he sees is really the future of that platform. I'm sure there's something going on like that with Neuralink, but I don't know enough about it to really say. Um, but I think it's, I think, you know, what they're doing with AI and, um, and machine learning within the, the Tesla platform is insane. And I'm sure they're doing something similar with Neuralink. <laughs> um, do you keep, do you find yourself, um, like kind of keeping up on like the latest breakthroughs with, um, you know, spinal cord injury research and stuff like that? I mean, like obviously anybody in our situation does keep your ear, you know, ear to the street a little bit on that sort of thing, mm -hmm. but you know, have you heard of anything that, that really excites you over, you know, the last few years? Um, I think the time that I was the most excited was um, there, obviously there, there's a lot of trials that look at um, treatment for acute spinal cord injury. And that's obviously a much different beast than chronic injury. Um, and I'm sure, as you know, most of the research focuses on the acute phase because it's a lot easier to treat before all the scar tissue settles in. Um, there is a lot of the information that I've been getting over the years comes from a researcher, Wise Young at Rutgers. Um, and he's, he has a lot of international trials and, and things that are going on. And the one that was the most interesting to me was some of the, um, the stem cell trials they were doing in chronic spinal cord injured patients. Um, and it was the use of um, one of the things that actually modulated the, um, the success of the, of the stem cells was lithium. Um, which, yeah. And I, I, you know, I talked to my, I have a family member, my uncle, who I'm very close with, who's a psychiatrist. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense because lithium works on, um, neurons and on, um, ion channels within neurons. He's like, okay, I can actually see how that would work. Um, and I thought that was a very cool application of the technology. So they had people who, um, a lot of these studies were done in Singapore and they weren't done in the U S cause they weren't, uh, authorized to do them here. Um, but they would do, excise some of the um, stem cell or some of the scar tissue in chronic spinal cord injury patients. And they would give them um, stem cell in infusions in addition to lithium. And they actually saw that the two of them together, people who had, you know, were Asia A, totally, you know, complete injury developed new sensation. Some developed new motor function than they, what they had before, um, which I think is very cool. What I think is, the question, which I think you get to with Neuralink, is that um, we're kind of getting to a point where is it going to be more successful to try to fix the injury or to just route around the injury? And I think that's the potential for technology in Neuralink is do we have a sensor that's more, you know, that sort of picks up the signals in the brain and then can route the impulses to muscles past the injury? Right. Um, that could be really cool. Um, they were doing very basic stuff with that um, using electrical stimulation in the years past, but it was really very clumsy and, you know, you could make people stand up and take a few jerky steps, but not really do any fine movement. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my thought has been, you know, if, if Elon Musk can figure out how to get us walking again, even though, like, even if we're not able to feel and, and have the sensation, um, then if the rest of the scientists and researchers can just focus on that and, you know, if he can take half of, it, uh, half of the, the ish, issue away, then, you know, it's a great start. So, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and so you're in your residency now, is that right? Uh, so I finished residency. I'm doing fellowship, which is like a subspecialty training after residency. Okay. So how long does that last then before you're like in your, in your, dream job or, or I don't know how that would work. So yeah, tell, tell us how long your uh, fellowship lasts for. That's a great question. <laughs> um, I'm uh, 
the path that I'm pursuing is uh, pediatric surgery, which is the most competitive surgical subspecialty because um, there's just that, not that many spots. So I'm, I did five years of residency. I did two years of basic science research during residency. My current fellowship is one year. So this is my eighth year out of medical school. Um, and if I'm, I'm trying to apply to get a, um, you know, a pediatric, a full pediatric surgery fellowship that'll make me board eligible, um, which will be another two years. So I still have a couple of years to go. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> it feels never ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, and, and then you, in, in these interviews, especially at the end, I like to kind of ask, especially other folks in, in with dealing with spinal cord injuries, what are your, you know, do you have any like health or fitness tips? I mean, I'm sure with yourself, like you're probably so you work so much and things like that. It's probably hard to get in workouts and, and, you know, eat healthy and things like that. So what, what do you do to kind of keep yourself on point? Um, I'm, I, um, I'm, I squeeze in exercising and lifting whenever I can. I, I used to work out and lift before I was injured. Um, so I, um, I ended up when COVID started, I bought a home gym because um, I was going to a gym regularly and I didn't want to stop doing that when the pandemic hit because, you know, that's, it's hard, especially when you're in a chair all day, it's hard to get any exercise, it's hard to get any movement. So sometimes I really have to force myself. Um, but having it in the house has actually been kind of fantastic. <laughs> and um, I, I don't see myself ever going back to a regular gym anymore. Um, so I, you know, went out to a sporting goods store, bought three or $400 worth of free weights. And so now I, I lift probably three, if I'm lucky, four days out of the week, but usually it's about three. Um, and just try to get in 90 minutes or so, three days a week. Um, as far as eating, that's tough also, just because the hours and sometimes we're in a, a procedure for five hours and then you barely have enough time to manage post-op orders and things. So um, before you're doing another one. So I, I just, I make, you know, pre-pack, I pre-pack meals at the start of the week. Um, I buy pre-cooked chicken and vegetables and stuff and try to just throw stuff together that's healthy for me. Um, but um, yeah, it's, I, I, you have to condense the time, like, you know, just like you said. Um, but for me, it's, I'd go crazy if I didn't work out a couple times a week. <laughs> plus, pl plus the thing I found is that it helps, you know, it helps my mobility, um, doing all the exercises helps with spasticity. It's all, it's, you know, all those things the physical therapist told us while we were in rehab. <laughs> um, is there any like, uh, supplements or things like that that you've found over the years that, that you really think help you and that you might be able to pass on to other people? Um, off the, top the only head. thing, the only thing that I take religiously, um, or that I, you know, regularly is vitamin D, um, you know, bone density for us is a huge, huge problem. And that starts to do, you know, it starts to decline as soon as we're injured. And then once, you know, um, if we're not standing and I, I'm using the standing chair in the OR pretty much every day, sometimes for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. So I'm still standing. I'm still losing bone density. Um, yeah, I got, I've gotten DEXA scans a couple of times and, and it's, so that's the vitamin D is a huge, huge thing. I, my physiatrist and uh, when I was in medical school, pretty much has everybody on vitamin D. Um, and uh, there are studies that have shown that even, you know, kids who live in Florida, grow up in Florida are still deficient in it because they're in the air conditioning all the time. <laughs> um, but it's vitamin D is the one thing I think everybody should be taking. Um, yeah. Other than that, it's standing, a multivitamin. Yeah, you standing that many hours a day and still losing bone, that's a, that's a big uh, warning sign to all of us. So, yeah, that, that's awesome, though, that, um, the, like, I'm just glad you were able to give us that little bit of information that you're still losing, <laughs> losing that, even though you're, you're up all the time. So, yeah, um, that's definitely important. Well, hey, Dr. Chris McCullough, this has been a blast catching up with you and, uh, and you know, finding out about your story. And, uh, you know, we definitely appreciate your time. But yeah, like, let's do it again sometime soon. If you have some free time. Sure, man. I'm happy to happy to and happy to join in any other conversations you guys are having too. So wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much. And we will, uh, we'll be in touch. Cool, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. All right. That was Dr. Chris McCullough. Once again, I want to thank him for uh, taking some time out of his 
busy schedule and getting us in to uh, dude how did he get it how did he get in here that's what i want to know i mean like you just figure like i mean he he really must have went out of his way to get on here yeah i mean we uh you know we were working on scheduling it for a while because he's out on the east coast so and he's a surgeon and he's a surgeon so who knows (laughs) like getting caught we we might be a little busy i I don't know yeah we had to reschedule a couple of times so i mean i'm just thinking of like just because i just went through a surgery and um the it was like a freaking surgery factory man it was like a sweatshop dude yeah I mean, that's what it looked like at the vaccine spot too, man. Dude, I was hurting us through there like cattle. My surgery was at, I was supposed to go in at 605, which I did. Yeah. But so I was like one of the first three people in there. And then by like 645, about seven when I was getting ready to go back after I got IV and all this stuff, dude, like all the rooms are full. Wow. People are coming in and out. That seems so early to be. Bro. And then when I get out there, like all the units, because they're like just little like was it at the hospital or was it in a just in like a surgery center it's like a surgery center or olympia orthopedic has like their own surgery center and uh man there was like all the i don't know what you would call them like little pods like units they're just little like i was sitting in a chair like a lounge chair basically and then there's like a curtain and they're all full and there's like people in there going oh you know I was like, dude, get me out of here. That's crazy. <laughs> but yeah. I'll tell you, man, that was one of the, the best sleeps I've had in a minute, man. It was, I was out. Um, uh, but yeah, but as far as the, uh, the surgery on, in a wheelchair, being a um, having a spinal cord injury and doing surgeries, I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me, man, the things that people in the spinal cord injury community do. Right, right. No, and there's, yeah, there's amazing people doing amazing things out here um, in this community for sure. Um, you know, he mentioned that, uh, you know, he has, bone, like, so he, a, a common factor with a spinal cord injury is bone loss, bone density loss. And he, like, so I just had a bone density test a couple weeks ago. And, uh, it turned out I have osteoporosis, which, you know, probably um, pretty common. Yeah, it's pretty common. I, I was already prepared for that. Um, Nick Lucius had already, you know, from Barwis had already mm-hmm. told me that's probably what's going to happen. Um, and that that is. But um, so Dr. Chris McCullough was saying that the most important thing is to take vitamin D because you Why? need like yeah. bone bone density. And he said he is, you know, stands up sometimes 8 10 12 hours a day in his wheelchair and he still has bone loss so like that just goes to show you like we could be standing up all day like just with this disorder yeah with this with this uh injury it's you're gonna have to be so have you been taking a lot of vitamin d before i I always take vitamin d so me too like every day man i've been taking it for years just it's just assisting and slowing the process essentially exactly yeah so i'm i'm gonna get up i'm gonna start getting up at my standing like, dude he, he must have crazy endurance man that's up. what i was thinking too man because i i mean just he's got to be exhausted yeah it, it, yeah i mean i can't even like having that responsibility is just like there's so many things that can go wrong yeah you know yeah dealing with a spinal cord injury that yeah. i mean he's i yeah. mean i trust the I trust these surgeons, you know, they've, they've, um, done a lot of surgeries and, you know, nothing can be perfect. You can't expect perfect out of a human. So, I mean, we're all going to make mistakes, but you know, they have a, a lot of, um, pressure on their plate, you know, and having a spinal cord injury and limited mobility on top of that is, um, crazy. I mean, shout out to his, his team also. Yeah, no, and he he's had a lot of help along the way, and the people um, I'm blanking on the name of I, you all just heard it. I'm blanking on the name of the uh, university that he went to in Cleveland, but they kind of you know laid it all out for him to be able to get in there and get get cracking at it. So um, you know, it's definitely like we all need help along the way, man, and and that's uh that goes for anybody, but that's it's pretty awesome what what was done to. To let him kind of succeed Did and he, chase uh, his dream. I haven't heard this interview yet, obviously. Was there mention of what kind of surgeries he was doing? 
So he does minimally invasive pediatric surgeries, which is like one of the like hardest fields to break into. And he actually, I, I believe I saw on Twitter a couple days ago, because I did this interview two weeks or a week and a half ago. And I think after the interview, he ended up getting a, like getting a new job or a new in, uh, uh, residency or something at the University of Michigan, I want to say. Dang. So he, he's uh, stepping up and you know that's it's pretty awesome man i'm i'm definitely i definitely salute him for the hard Hats work off yeah um so brandon at um i have an email into these um uh, people that i read this article a couple days ago uh about nagoya university which i believe is in japan um the researchers there have identified a gene that plays a crucial role in regenerating neurons um in African clawed frog tadpoles, which okay. is, I'm guessing is probably a lot like the axolotls that we've talked about before. Yeah. And, um, they've had a lot of success in regenerating nerves in mice after with that gene, with this gene it's, out of these tadpoles. Yeah. So I'm trying to reach out to them to get, get somebody on the podcast. Well, because... that'd be cool. I mean, we all know that's the missing link, right? Exactly. Whatever man. is causing it's regeneration. Regeneration. Need... Yeah. This fi- reconnecting that signal. Yep. Yep. So, got that going coming up. You can look forward to next week. Well, you week. should uh, post a, a link of that article on Twitter. Yeah, I will for sure. So people go look for that. Yep. Yep. Check it out. We're at uh, Live to Walk One on Twitter. Live to Walk Again on Facebook and uh, Instagram what else i don't think that's all this yeah, time. we're not else? on tiktok no we need to get you on tiktok jay i'm not doing any dances <laughs> bro um but yeah next week brandon i feel i've been feeling super exclusive this last two weeks i've been reading this book uh by a gentleman named michael murphy who suffered a spinal cord injury um i believe like a decade ago and he was a, a junior in, in college i believe and that just it's a crazy it's like it's such an uplifting book and even even like during it like really jumps around like the time frame and it talks about um post-traumatic growth Mm. um and things like that and it's really really well written book that he's done and uh he's actually a mono skier on the olympic uh, the paralympic uh team unfortunately they didn't get to compete this year i think their games got pushed back with with covid but um yeah we're i'm interviewing him this week which is going to be i'm looking forward to it seems like a really cool guy um and i think everybody will enjoy that but until that's cool man you got uh exclusive access to a unreleased book yeah book comes out next saturday perks perks of the pod right there bro for real for but real. if anybody is writing a book, send it Jay's way because he's a reader and uh, you want to have someone look it over and give you honest feedback. Jay, Jay's we'll definitely get you, Yeah, get you on the podcast. Yeah. Let's go. But uh, yeah, so again, please listen, like, share, review, rate, all that good stuff. We're, uh, you know, we're just out here trying to find a cure for paralysis and, uh, you know, we, uh, we appreciate you all listening talk to you next week.